Peter is joining us for around even so. Yeah, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. no, I'm staying overnight in the hotel again because I'm then going on tomorrow to Gatwick Airport, which is closer to here than it is to where I live in Southampton. Uh, so for Gatwick, I fly out to Budapest and spending the week doing an apologetics conference out in Hungary. So, uh, yeah, I thought I would... came last night and then be here for breakfast and be a bit more relaxed that I found the place and so on. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, you'll of course be in Oxford uh, tomorrow <coughs> and the kilns. Lewis's uh, house in Oxford and uh, seeing Magdalen College and the Bird and Baby where he and the, the Inklings writers like uh, himself and uh, Tolkien and Charles Williams and people to meet. And uh, you probably therefore know a little something about C.S. Lewis if only uh, his Chronicles of Narnia children's books later turned into various TV series and, and film series ongoing, I believe. Um, but Richard Dawkins, how many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? A few, but by no means all, so I will, I'll do more introduction of, of him. Um, why am I qualified to talk on this? So let me just highlight two uh, of my recent uh, books, uh, one which I wrote a couple of years ago called uh, C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist. Now again, how many people have heard of The New Atheist or The Neo-Atheist Movement? Uh, that's Yes, okay, a couple. So again, I will introduce this uh, new atheist movement uh, to you. I think many of them have really met the new atheists uh, in uh, students and teachers before without uh, noticing that. Uh, Where their thoughts come from, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, is that your books? Yes, so this is uh, one, Sisters vs. New Atheists, and this is one just last year that I um, edited uh, on, um, you were saying tomorrow is the anniversary of Lewis's death. Well, in uh, a couple of years ago was the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. And there was a service in Westminster Abbey in London to unveil a uh, memorial to him in what's called Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, where there are memorials to um, great literary figures of the country that are sort of celebrated <coughs> there. And they unveiled a memorial to Lewis, and they had a day conference the day before. And the, his two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, that week also put on uh, conferences about Lewis. And so we gathered together um, all of that material uh, from the conference about Lewis as a literary critic and the Abbey service, uh, stuff about Lewis as an apologist, uh, etc. And we gathered it together into this uh, book, C.S. Lewis at Poet's Corner. Um, celebrating the uh, things that were, were done in England to celebrate Lewis on the 50th anniversary what, of his what, death. Uh, what other poets are at Poets Corner? Is it? Uh, so it's a, it's a whole uh, range of, not, not just poets in the sense of, of, of poetry, but, but literature uh, in general. Uh, famous figures of literature... Um, I would hesitate to list off the top of my head particular ones uh, who are there, but it's it's kind of the national memorial for famous literary yeah. figures. Yeah. Uh, so. okay, just explain. Uh, I was in Westminster Abbey, the church that I went forbi. There are also there are these kind of memorials for famous people, among them Poets Corner. 
Og det at C.S. Lewis for to år siden kom dit, så, så ligger han altså, øh, så er han på en måte plassert blant den nasjonalarven til England på viktige forfattere. Og det er, det er litt sånn, det er litt stort da. Ja. I den forbindelse var det han skrevet boka. Um, both of these are available in Kindle versions as well, so if you want to go and download one now, you can... <laughs> um, now this is uh, a photo of a rather younger-looking C.S. Lewis, uh, and a quote from a letter of his from 1916 to his friend Arthur Greaves. Um, and he said to Arthur, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them, from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions are merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki. It's all made up mythology. Um, this is to bring home to you the fact that uh, in his younger days, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Um, and indeed, uh, when I wrote my uh, book, C.S. Lewis vs. the New Atheist, I went back to his diaries, his letters... Um, to show that not only was he an atheist, but he was an atheist who held a lot of views that were very similar to the so-called new atheist movement of today. Uh, this um, moniker comes from an article in Wired magazine, uh, The New Atheism, uh, about a, a bunch of um, primarily British and American writers, so there's a few sort of French writers and so on, uh, who started publishing uh, anti-religious books, particularly straight after the 9-11 uh, attacks on the World Trade Center uh, in America in 2001. And an, an American atheist called Sam Harris started writing a book that night and published the first uh, book in this movement that became dubbed The New Atheism. Uh, it involves people such as Sam Harris... Daniel Dennett, who's an American philosopher, um, the uh, deceased now um, uh, British-turned-American citizen journalist Christopher Hitchens, um, British philosopher A.C. Grayling, a French uh, writer called uh, Michel Onfray. Uh, but most notoriously, most well-known of this group of writers is uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, a British scientist and zoologist from Oxford University. Dawkins is probably the best-known atheist in the UK and is very well-known internationally as well, particularly in America. Um, he uh, is by training a zoologist from Oxford University. Uh, for a while, he held uh, an endowed chair as the professor for the public understanding of science uh, at Oxford University. And he, uh, for a long time, had been a best-selling author of popular science books, uh, books like uh, The Blind Watchmaker, The Selfish Gene, so on. Uh, and it had always been clear that he was an atheist, uh, and indeed that he saw uh, a link between his belief in evolution and the lack of credibility of believing in a god. Um, but um, post-2001, uh, he uh, sort of jumped, as it were, on this bandwagon of, of anti-religious best-selling books, and published the best-selling book, The God Delusion, which has recently come out in, in a second edition uh, with a new uh, foreword and stuff. And I recently did a talk that you can find on my podcast channel, some talks uh, interacting 
with Dawkins defending uh, some of the key content of the God Delusion book against uh, what he sees as the key criticisms of it. And I interact with his new introduction and show, uh, as I do in the C.S. Lewis versus New Atheist book, that uh, although Dawkins is undoubtedly an intelligent man who's, uh, you know, got a PhD in a science subject and he's taught at Oxford and so on. When he steps outside of his subject area to talk about philosophy, arguments for God or uh, New Testament studies or whatever, um, he does not know what he's talking about and he is a very bad thinker. Unfortunately, he's a very influential bad thinker. Dawkins is by no means the best representative of a thoughtful atheism. There are much better atheist philosophers and writers that you could go to for a serious engagement with the issues. Um, Dawkins uses bad rhetoric, not good rhetoric. Can I say something in Norwegian? Then I've overshot the God Delusion, the best-selger in the world. Den ligger på alle... Altså, i bokhandlere nå, så ligger det sånn der bok anbefalinger. Det er mange år siden den kom. Den ligger fortsatt fremme som anbefalt litteratur i alle bokhandlere her og i USA og sånn. Og i Norge så har den oversatt, og da heter den Gud, en brannforestilling gitt ut på humanist forrang. Den er utrolig mye lest, veldig mye brukt, og det er, som man sier, det er elendig tenkt, men det er en veldig overvisende retorikk. Altså, det er dårlig filosofi og dårlig kunnskap men veldig overvisende, sånn at veldig mange ungdommer, og voksne for så vidt, som er ateister, leser det her, og begynner å argumentere slik som Dawkins. Ja. Det var han som skadde han, sant? Ja. Hvis noen vil lese, så ligger vi i sekken. Det er ligger i sekken, ja. Hva er det spørsmålet her? En god for gammel, eller? How old is Dawkins? Is he 70 or...? Yeah, he's in his um, in his 70s now, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's retired yeah. from being a professor, yeah. so he's, he's an emeritus professor, I think. And we can uh, meet him in Oxford tomorrow. You may bump into him, yes, of course. Uh, he lives in Oxford. He has been a professor at Oxford? Yes, yeah. Um, so he was a professor in the sciences, and then this, this chair in the Professor of the Public Understanding of Science was a what's called an endowed share, where someone rich gives a, a, a university a lot of money and says, set up a chair of this, that or the other, and give so-and-so, give Dawkins the job, was the condition of this money being given to the college for setting up the chair of the public understanding of science. Another guy is in that chair now. But, uh, yeah, there's, no, there's not a literal chair, you understand. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> So Dawkins is, is worth engaging with uh, and writing about and doing podcasts about and so on, um, not because like he's a really good atheist thinker to engage with, but because he's such an influential atheist thinker. Um, people come across his books, his TV documentaries that he's made, his website, his articles, and are unfortunately all too easily um, influenced by what he says and I want to put my finger on four points in a sort of um, fake conversation as it were between Lewis and Dawkins that highlight what I think C.S. Lewis would see as some key uh, 
problems with uh, Dawkins' type of atheism, with the, the sort of new atheist movement as a whole, sort of Dawkins as a representative of that, just to, to cut things down and give us something manageable. Um, and that is that uh, Lewis would point out that Dawkins has contra- self-contradictory ideas in four areas. Now, in, in philosophy, it doesn't get worse for a viewpoint than being self-contradictory. Um, if something contradicts itself, it cannot be true. Uh, it must be wrong. Uh, and there's no uh, better argument against believing something than showing that it is self-contradictory. So I think I, Lewis would try to point out to Dawkins that he has a self-contradictory approach to the, the ideas of faith and knowledge, a self-contradictory approach to um, ethical things, a self-contradictory approach to the notions of freedom and responsibility, and finally a self-contradictory approach to the question of who Jesus was. So start with this uh, concepts of, of faith and knowledge. Yeah? One. Let me introduce you this, this uh, term scientism. Keep it that separate in your mind from the term science. Uh, well, uh, we will say uh, scientism in, in Norway too. Um, they are about stickdor, scientist, marism. They are not some unforeclared. I mean, we we bring the same word in Norway. Scientism. So scientism is a it's primarily a viewpoint about how we know things uh, that gives uh, exclusive or primary rights to determine what we think we know or can rationally believe to scientific methods, to principally to empirical kind of scientific experimental kind of methods of knowing things. So it's the, it's the view that says science is the only way to know things, rather than you, you just saying it's... Anything, uh, um, you can't know anything unless you know it in a scientific way. Yeah. So it doesn't just say science is a way to know some kinds of thing, which is what I would say, but it is the way to know anything. Yeah. So it's the same as naturalism? It's very much related to naturalism, particularly because many people who hold this kind of view, many atheists in our culture tend to both be naturalists and to have a scientific view of knowledge and indeed many people in that viewpoint would define science in such a way that the, any, any answer science gives to a question must be consistent with a naturalistic worldview. Um, so they will say a, a scientific answer to a question can't include reference to anything supernatural. Okay, just say something in Norwegian. Um, scientists, they meet at many places on Twitter, and they say, we don't believe in anything other than science. 
Det eneste vi tror på, det er det vitenskapen kan bevise. Og det betyr at det er veldig mange ting vitenskap ikke kan si noe om. Men da sier de at det kan vi ikke tro på. Og da faller all religion utenfor omtrent. Alt som er supernasjonalisme, altså overnaturlig, det faller utenfor. Men det er jo et problem, fordi at hvorfor skal man tro på scientisme? Vi må jo ha en forklaring på hvorfor vi skal tro det, men han kommer tilbake til det sikkert. Det er ikke gitt at man bare skal tro det vitenskapen kommer frem til. So what you call that in itself is, a, is very much a debatable question within the philosophy of science, for example. So we have this scientism, this scientistic view that says science is the only way to know anything. Uh, so according to Dawkins, he says all beliefs fall into one of two categories. And you have, he says on the one hand, there's what he calls proper evidence-based belief. And on the other hand is what he calls blind faith. Um, as if putting the word blind before faith is, is like actually they're, they're kind of one hyphenated word for him. Um, it's like any faith is, by definition, blind faith, according to Dawkins. He says, faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. So if there were even a scrap of evidence, just a little bit of evidence, then it would, would not be faith to believe, because you'd have evidence for what you believe. So you either have evidence-based belief, or you believe without evidence, and that's blind faith. And that, that's it, according to Dawkins. Well, Lewis would disagree. Uh, for example, in a famous quotation in an essay of his, Lewis uh, said this about the relationship between faith and reason. So when he said uh, he defined faith as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. So f for Lewis, it's more that your reason is convinced to believe something and then faith is about continuing to believe it or to trust in it even more despite your emotional kind of difficulties with it. Uh, he gave a famous analogy. He says, um, supposing I'm going into hospital to have an operation. I'm lying there as the anaesthetist is bringing the, the mask to my face to, to give me the, the gas to make me un unconscious so that I won't feel any pain when the surgeon starts doing the operation. And he says, now I, I'm convinced in my mind that modern anaesthetics and so on work and that I won't feel any pain. He says, nonetheless, when, I, when I'm looking at the arrangement of sharp implements <laughs> and knives and needles and things... <laughs> I might feel a bit scared. <laughs> and he says, faith is staying on the table and allowing the anaesthetist to put the mask on and to send me under. I, I, I'm trusting that this is going to work. I'm actually trusting myself to it in the face of my kind of irrational fear 
that it won't work. It's one thing to be convinced up here. It's another thing to be to actually trust myself to it. Uh, and so that was the kind of opposition that Lewis saw. It was between uh, rationally based belief and uh, temptations from your non-rational nature not to trust what you are already convinced rationally is true. Um, so, you know, Dawkins would say religious beliefs, he'd put all those beliefs into the blind faith category. Because there's stuff science tells us, and that's stuff we know, and then there, everything else is blind faith. And that would include religious beliefs, of course. Um, and he just says that, that's sort of true by definition. Lewis would say, no, that, that's not true by definition. Here's a different definition. <laughs> Here's another way of thinking of the relationship uh, between faith and reason. Indeed, biblically, if you look at the, the biblical language that we translate using the word faith, which comes through the Latin translation, fide, in, in, um, in uh, uh, Greek mythology, uh, you know the story of Pandora's box, Pandora has the box and she told, don't look in the box because she gives in to temptation she opens the box and looks in the box in the box is the spirit of, of, of trust and faithfulness pistis and pistis leaves the box and mankind are left uh, in a world without trust and so everything goes wrong because she opens Pandora's box um, well the, the Greek word pistis is the word that we translate as faith and that's the sort of mythological background of this term. It, it means that the spirit of trust or faithfulness. It's about character. Um, it is certainly not something that means blind faith. It's not even something that means uh, trusting some, something that you are rationally convinced of, actually. It, it just doesn't say anything one way or the other about whether or not your trust is rationally placed or irrationally placed. It just means trust, uh, assuming that something is true, trusting yourself to it. Um, it can also mean believing it, but it, it doesn't even have to mean believing that it's true. It just means acting as if it were true, just accepting it. Um, but all of the biblical language around the notion of faith of trust makes it clear that the uh, the Bible thinks that to put your trust in God or to put your trust in Jesus is a rational thing to do. Is something that can be done on the basis of evidence and argument and testimony and so on. That there, there's no contradiction between having faith and having, as Lewis says, reasons to believe the thing you're putting your faith in. Um, and when Dawkins says all faith just is, by definition, blind faith, it's like, as John Lennox says, you know, has this going on even read dictionaries. Um, the word just means more than that. And that's not how Christian tradition has, has, has understood the term. Yeah. This is another fascinating quote from Lewis. It says this. Not only does he, the thing about Lewis, not only does he have good ideas, he's really good at expressing them because he was a poet and into literature and so on. 
and he was trained in philosophy. <laughs> Uh, so he gets the head and the heart together. He says, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But I remember that when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. <laughs> Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion and, and non-rational factors. Um, you know, things always seem worse late at night and seem better in the morning. And all of this. It's like, it's just, it's all these non-rational things affect how we feel about things, of course. Um, but that's got nothing to do with, you know, am I... Am I convinced that it's true and am I determined to trust it despite non-rational temptations not to believe? I think Lewis would also want to point out that Dawkins has far too narrow an understanding of knowledge. And this was something that he would have said when he was an atheist. So Lewis was an atheist brought up on the atheism of folks like David Hume and the, the Greek pagan poets, and Lucretius and so on, and the, the classical philosophical tradition. And he never joined in with this idea that scientific ways of knowing are the only ways of knowing. And that was a very popular idea, um, particularly in Oxford circles in the early, mid-20th century. Uh, today's new atheists, many of them, studied their doctoral degrees at Oxford University, most of them, and studied under professors that C.S. Lewis was a colleague of at Oxford in the 1930s and 40s, 50s. Um, so really, the new atheists are sort of one intellectual generation removed from the Oxford of C.S. Lewis's day. Um, and this idea... That you know, science is like the be-all and end-all of, of rationality was, was growing at that time, and he never bought into it. Um, the demand, this idea, you know, in order to properly believe something, you've got to have evidence for it. Start thinking about this. It's very problematical. To say, in, in order to count as rational, each of my beliefs has to be backed up by scientific evidence. Well, that's really self-contradictory because that statement itself, that belief itself, is not something that you can show to be true using scientific evidence. Can I say that in Norwegian? Please. Let's remember that when you say that it's only science man can trust, where comes that can du bevise at det bare er vitenskap man kan tro på? Kan du vitenskapelig bevise at vitenskap er det eneste du kan tro på? Nej, det er en tro som du har, som du ikke har evidens for, da, eller som du ikke har, kan begrunne med vitenskap. Forstår du det? Derfor så er det en selvmålsigende. Well, another way of thinking about it is, is to say, okay, I, I'm going to claim to know A. It, it, Dawkins is saying, in order for that claim to be reasonable, I've got to have some evidence that shows that A is true. 
let's call the existence of that evidence and the idea that that evidence really does point to the truth of A, let's label that as B. But of course, if we take Dawkins' rule seriously, in order for me to count B as something that I can reasonably claim to know, I can only reasonably claim to know B if I have some evidence for it. Let's call that C. But I can only reasonably claim to know C if I have some evidence for it. D. See what is going to happen here. I'm going to end up going all the way around the world trying to prove everything. Well, you can't do that. In order to argue for anything, you have to start somewhere that you haven't argued for. You, literally, you cannot argue for everything you believe. There must be some things that it's, it's rational to believe and to start arguing from that you don't have to argue for. Because you cannot argue for everything. We do not have the time. <laughs> or a completely different angle on this, if you've got the claim that science is the only way to know anything, you will very soon notice that there are many things that we've traditionally thought we know that fall outside of the, the definition of scientific knowledge that these people have. So if I claim a moral claim like the Holocaust was wrong, science doesn't have anything to say about that. Um, science will tell me how much poison do I need to put into the teapot so that my rich Aunt Mabel <laughs> will not be with us tomorrow and I will inherit her country estate. You know, science would be excellent at giving me the answer to that question. But to the question, if I poison my aunt in order to get her money, does that make me a good person or a bad person? Science has nothing to say about that kind of issue. And yet it seems to me very clear that I know that poisoning my beloved aunt just to get my hands on her money makes me a bad person. <laughs> That's something I should not do. It's true that I shouldn't do that. And so on the one hand you have a theory of knowledge that says you can't know any moral truths. And on the other hand, I have an, uh, an experience, an intuition, where it just seems to me that I know a moral truth. What do I do about that? It seems to me, so, I would say, so much the worse for your theory of knowledge. If your theory of knowledge can't kind of encompass the fact that the Holocaust is wrong, or that torturing small kids just for fun is wrong then there's something wrong with your theory of knowledge. Um, rather than, than there being, that being a good reason for me to say, oh, I see I thought the Holocaust was wrong, but now, oh, now I see I was mistaken about that, and there are no moral facts, because you can only know things through science. Um, why play it that way around? You know, rainbows are beautiful. Um, we do have mathematical and logical knowledge, 
we do know that the, the law of non-contradiction is true, that things that are self-contradictory cannot be true. Do I know that through scientific method? No, I have to assume that in order to do any science. Uh, do I know that my memory is generally reliable? Um, well, you might say, well, we could do some scientific studies on your memory to show, is it generally reliable or not? Um, but every time that I thought to myself, oh, yeah, I, okay, I am rational to believe that my memory is generally reliable because I remember we did those scientific studies <laughs> and I remember what the results were and I remember that we did the study properly and, hang on a minute, I'm relying upon my memory in order to justify my belief in my memory. Um, Bertrand Russell once pointed out, maybe the world sprang into existence five minutes ago, complete with uh, rings in trees from past years of growth that never happened, but the rings are just there. Maybe there's food in my stomach from a meal that I never ate. Maybe that was created in my stomach five minutes ago. Um, for all that we can tell, scientifically speaking, by looking at the world through microscopes and telescopes and etc. The world could have been created five minutes ago. But don't we all believe that the world is older than five minutes old? And is not that belief a rational belief? We're rational to believe that yesterday happened. But you can't prove that with science. Det er så viktig akkurat det han sier nå, for det er veldig viktig stoff i møte med ateisme, som sier, eller scientisme, så er det. Det er mange ting vi går og tror, og hvis du skal bevise hvorfor det er sant det du tror, så klarer du ikke det. Det er alt fra moral, den der fra C.S. Lewis, den der med å putte gift i sin tantes kopp. Vi kan bevise bevise hvorfor hun døde, men vi kan aldri bevise at det var noe galt å gjøre det. Vi kan aldri bevise at Holocaust var galt, og det samme er, vi kan ikke bevise at vårt minne, vår tankegang, er på en måte riktig. Vi kan ikke bevise det, men vi er nødt til å tro ganske mange ting i utgangspunktet, uten å bevise det for i det hele tatt å eksistere. Og hvis Dawkins sier at det eneste vi skal tro på, det er det som vi vitenskapelig kan bevise, og resten kaller han blind tro, så har vi et problem. Da er det veldig lite egentlig vi kan tro på. Så hva jeg sier er ikke mot sciens. Jeg er ikke anti-scientifisk. Hva jeg bare sier er at sciens må stikke til å gjøre hva det er bra til å gjøre. Og ikke være kind of blown up and elevated into this sort of total view of how we know things. Uh, Lewis points out uh, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Pacifist, he says, you cannot produce rational intuition. So, so the fact that you see that the law of non-contradiction is true. You can't produce that rational intuition by argument. Because argument depends on rational intuition. In that sense, proof 
rests on the unprovable, that just has to be seen. Um, if, if, if you were to be someone who said, you know, I'm sceptical that logic is reliable and that it works, can you give me a good argument for believing that? How, how would I do that? I, I'd have to assume the very things that I used in the process of trying to give a good argument to do it. So in that sense, not only is there there's no opposition between faith and reason, but you have to exercise faith in order to reason about anything. Um, so reason needs faith in these, trust in these principles that we just intuit, that we just kind of see instinctually, as it were, are true. Uh, and if you demanded evidence, you said, well, I'm going to be sceptical of anything until I've got evidence. Well, then you really would end up believing nothing. Uh, and so Dawkins' sort of demand for proper evidence-based belief, otherwise he's not going to take you seriously, is, is actually ultimately a very anti-scientific view. You wouldn't be able to do science if you consistently followed through uh, Dawkins' way of framing the relationship between faith and reason and what faith means and so on. As an atheist, Lewis rejected scientism and he said that the distinction made between scientific and non-scientific thoughts will not easily bear the weight we're attempting to put on it. And the fact that he took not just science but also philosophy seriously allowed him to seriously consider philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And what you notice about the writings of the New Atheists is although they occasionally talk about the arguments for God, they don't take those arguments seriously enough to bother studying them enough to, bother to actually understand what those arguments even are, let alone to properly engage in the scholarly sort of debate on those arguments that philosophers would have in a peer-reviewed journal um, on the matter. Most of them reject um, the philosophy. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Stephen Hawking, for example, in the, his recent book, The Grand Design, starts off by saying philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the torchbearers in our search for knowledge. Um, he's, just, he's just written off all of his colleagues in the philosophy department at Cambridge University. I'm sure you know, they're very pleased about that. Philosophy is dead? And... Then he spends the first chunk of that book engaged in the philosophy of science. And he has a very bizarre philosophy of science as well. But you know, he says philosophy is dead and then spends a lot of that book talking about the philosophy of science and the implications of fine-tuning for whether or not there's a god and so on. That's philosophical discussion. And so is it any surprise that he enters into that discussion in a very naive and uninformed uh, manner? And Dawkins uh, does the same. Does the same on ethics as well. Um, this follows on from what we were saying about science and ethics. Lewis says um, it's widely believed that scientific thought puts us in touch with reality, whereas moral, metaphysical, philosophical thought does not. But on this view, when we say that the, the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that, um, for example... Men ought to get a living wage, ought to be paid fairly. Uh, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. When there are no moral facts, 
There's just facts about how we subjectively feel about things. Um, on this scientific view, it says the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood or justice or injustice, they confront one another and no, no rapprochement, no meeting is possible. And there's a, a, a profound um, place where, where Lewis describes his state of mind at one time as an atheist where he says um, everything that he believed to be real he believed to be literally meaningless and everything that gave him a sense of sort of meaning and beauty and and so on he thought was false he thought well that's just all my subjective feelings it's just the facts that science reveals and I have subjective feelings about this or that being good or beautiful or meaningful or so on but that's all nonsense um, and that was a sort of a depth of despair uh, for him that he worked his way out of by rejecting this sort of scientific view of things. Can I translate that? Mm. Now you will notice um, that Dawkins is constantly moralising, he's constantly saying things about good and evil, he's particularly always pointing the, the finger at religion and religious people and saying religious people do evil things and it's their religion that makes them do those evil things. Uh, and religion is bad for people and for society. It's not just an intellectual mistake. It's an ethically bad position to adopt, he says. Um, he says, you know, one of, the bad, one of the really bad things about all religion is that it encourages people to have blind faith rather than to think about things and to look at evidence like we ought to. So on. This is constantly saying this kind of thing. And yet, because he also embraces scientism, Dawkins is led to reject the objective reality of any moral truths. So Dawkins famously um, says, um, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, i.e. no God, no purpose, no given objective purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's just the mechanical machine of nature behaving according to the laws of physics, and that's it, according to Dawkins. But you see the self-contradiction involved in saying, yeah, there, there is no good, there is no evil, and then saying religion is evil. <laughs> He says there's a non-overlapping, exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, he says, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas for which the word true and false have no meaning, he says. Uh, that is very 
akkurat den forrige slaget som jeg hadde, at Doggins mener det finnes altså ingen mening i universet. Det finnes ikke godt, det finnes ikke ondt. Det finnes ingen moral. Det eksisterer ikke. Da tar han konsekvensen av en ateistisk syn og sier at dette her finnes egentlig ikke. Det er noe vi eventuelt finner opp, blir enige om at vi skal ha. Men det finnes egentlig ikke. Samtidig som man da fordømmer all religion og sier at religion er ondt. Men da bruker han jo en moralsk fordømmelse av det, som han sier egentlig ikke eksisterer. Derfor er han selv noe sigende i det. This is a sort of philosophy of morality and knowledge and things that goes back to the Oxford philosopher A.J. Eyre in the 1930s that Dawkins has sort of probably picked up from his thesis supervisor who was a, a young guy in Oxford in the 1930s um, and hasn't noticed that even A.J. Eyre who was the, the foremost representative of this way of thinking about things uh, later on in his life completely gave up on this way of thinking about things and said it was all wrong full of mistakes and um, he just asserted these ideas and a surprising number of people believed him. <laughs> and uh, most philosophers have, have moved far away from this kind of uh, way of thinking uh, about morality and uh, what ideas can be f uh, rational or even true or false having, having meaning. So it's really hard to kind of bear that in mind when you're reading Dawkins' books and, you know... He says in the original edition, page 272, says Hitler and Stalin were, by any standards, spectacularly evil men. It's like, yeah, okay, well, I, I, I kind of want to agree with that. Um, but I'm also tr trying to remember the fact that Dawkins also says there is no such thing as, there are no standards. <laughs> Not objectively speaking... What, what, he, what does he really mean here? He doesn't mean, if we believe him, take him seriously, he doesn't mean we're spectacularly evil by, any, uh, by objective standards. But they, that, that's a fact that he's claiming. He, he, that's something that, that's meaningful for him to say, even. Um, and so when he turns to saying faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification... Brooks no argumentation. Again, he's, he doesn't mean evil in an, in an objective sense if we take him seriously. He's, he's kind of saying this. He, he says, on the one hand, we have a... Now, does he mean objective or subjective? If we take him at his own word, he only means subjective. We have a subjective moral obligation to oppose religion because it's a subjectively bad thing in that it encourages people to ignore their subjective intellectual moral obligations. In other words, just, I don't like it. Full stop. Um, and he's also claiming there are, of course, no objective moral values. He's also saying, it's not that I'm right not to like it. That's just my taste. It's just like, you know, me liking vanilla ice cream and you liking pistachio. <laughs> Uh, it's not that, you know, I'm right that vanilla is better. I would say, of course, there is objective beauty there. It's right to appreciate it. But it's not that one, you know, really is better. Uh, if, I, if you appreciate that, then that's great. Um, you're under no obligation not to. Um, maybe you like religion. 
he can't really say you're under an obligation not to, even under his false definition of faith. Um, You can't really hold those things together. Whereas for C.S. Lewis, even as an atheist, he thought of evil as an objective fact, what he called a real thing, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves. Remember, I'm talking about Mackey's book, Inventing Right and Wrong. It's not made up. Actually, Lewis believed that evil was something that any god worthy of the name ought not to permit. He thought if there was a god, there wouldn't be any evil. And because there is evil, that shows that there isn't a god. This was his major argument against believing in God. He says, if anyone had asked me, why don't you believe in God, my reply would have been something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a, of a benevolent, of a good and omnipotent spirit, I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else maybe a spirit that is indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit with the idea that maybe there's an evil deity um, but certainly not a good deity with the power to stop me. Now why would there be the classic problem of evil? But Lewis, this problem of evil can only be be a problem be an argument for Lewis as an atheist because he believes that there's an objective difference between good and bad. They can say this is something that ought not to be the case and that's a true claim uh, it's really interesting to notice that at least the majority of the new atheists do not use the problem of evil as an argument against God. Because if they did, they'd be kind of contradicting themselves, wouldn't they? Um, Lewis said, if, if nature um, is the only thing in existence, just the material world is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our moral standards, our moral beliefs. And opinions. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. Yeah, I might have been caused to feel a certain way about certain actions by my evolutionary history, but those feelings aren't reflecting something that's true, morally speaking, about those actions. It's just reflecting how it happened to have been useful for my ancestors to feel in the past. Um, Ancestors who had those feelings tended to out-compete ancestors who didn't in the struggle for survival. But it's not like, you know, it's a good thing to survive and a bad thing not to, or that they're meant to survive, or that that producing those feelings was the purpose of that process, you see. So Lewis came up with this argument, in effect, here. He's saying... If naturalism is true, then, then actually nothing would be objectively evil. Can I explain naturalism? Yeah. Uh, I for support my reason. I got here studio for it. I think that's right. Naturalism betyder bara att det eneste som finns är energi och materia och på något sätt det som det vi kan måle og se, det er det eneste som finnes, det finnes ikke noe annet enn det. Det er naturalisme. Og, og der kommer på en måte, moralen finnes på en måte ikke da. Det finnes ikke moral, det finnes ikke godt og ondt. Det er naturalismens... Og 
C.S. Lewis som ateist trodde at det fantes godt og ondt, derfor så kunne han ikke tro på naturalisme selv om han var ateist. Så hvis you know, the space-time matter system is all that there is, if naturalism is true, it would follow that there's nothing objectively evil. But two, he thought that there were some things, at least, that were objectively evil. His whole argument against God depended upon that. But from those two premises, it, it follows deductively that therefore naturalism is false. And so Lewis came to see that his, his naturalistic atheism was was, as he said, too simplistic. That this kind of argument against God, there was a sense in which it, it came back to bite him in the backside. Um, and, of course, he famously extend, then extended that conclusion that naturalism is false into um, his famous version of the moral argument uh, that he gives in Mere Christianity to say that the best explanation of there being an objective difference between good and bad is that there is a a wholly good, a maximally good, a greatest possible being whose very character is kind of the standard, the plumb line, the ruler of what is good and by contrast what is bad. Um, freedom and responsibility, briefly. Um, Lewis believed in what philosophers call libertarian free will, the kind of free will that we intuitively uh, think that we have and would intuitively link to notions about moral responsibility. Uh, it says in Mere Christianity that God created creatures who can go either wrong or right, uh, writing that a world of, of, of automata, of robots or puppets, of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. They wouldn't really be people uh, capable of entering freely into relationships, of saying yes or no to relationship with one another or with God. Uh, he says, um, the law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them. But the moral law, this objective moral law that he's been talking about, tells you what human beings ought to do and not do. But it doesn't necessarily describe how they actually do behave. Because they have a choice about whether they follow the moral law or they disobey the moral law. Now, I think uh, naturalists, and we'll see Richard Dawkins puts this argument, basically, if you start off believing that naturalism is true, I think there's a very strong argument for thinking that you should conclude that people do not have libertarian free will, uh, and indeed strong arguments for linking that to the notion of moral responsibility, and therefore for thinking that we don't have any moral responsibility either. And the argument would very simply goes something like this. Um, purely, merely physical systems, physical things and sets of things, behave according to the laws of physics, like the law of gravity. And they lack libertarian free will. The stone, when I let go of it, doesn't have a choice about what it does. It just does it. But two... And this is what you would have to believe if you were convinced that naturalism were true. Two, human beings are purely physical systems. There's nothing supernatural about us. There's no spirit or soul above and beyond our physical bodies and brains. 
the, the only kind of thing that exists on a naturalistic worldview is the material, natural world. So if purely physical systems lack free will, and human beings are purely physical systems, of course it follows that human beings lack libertarian free will. That's a, a, a valid argument. The problem, as I would say it, is that that second premise, I think, is false. I think there's more to human beings than just the material. But see, Dawkins has the same view. and He's discussing the implications of his worldview for thinking about people's moral responsibility and for thinking about the legal system. And he says human brains, basically what you are, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the law of physics. So you are your brain. Your brain is a thing governed by the laws of physics. He asks this question, isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? That might be a defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes. Whether it's nature or nurture, all of that is material and deterministic. It says concepts like blame and responsibility are banded about freely where human wrongdoers are concerned, but doesn't a, a mechanistic, a naturalistic view of the nervous system, of what a person is, doesn't such a view make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? And he, uh, he says, basically, yes, he says any crime is in principle to be blamed on antecedent conditions acting through the accused's physiology, heredity, environment. So when you don't blame the murderer, you blame the material conditions that caused them to kill someone. So why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? It says it doesn't make sense to be angry at child murderers and to say... That was a wrong thing that you did. You shouldn't have done that. You are responsible for your crimes. You deserve punishment. He says none of that makes any sense at all on a materialistic view of things. And I kind of think, I think he's got a powerful point. If I started with the same worldview as him, he seems to be sort of consistently working through the consequences. Um, but here's a, a problem for, for Dawkins. If everything about a person is governed by the laws of physics, surely, I don't know, blaming them for their intellectual failings, such as having blind faith instead of following evidence, um, wouldn't that make about as much sense as complaining about a domino uh, for falling over because it was hit by the previous domino in a domino run? Um, so how could anyone, for example, Christians, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? Obvious answer, they can't. And yet Dawkins goes around the whole time saying, the main problem with you religious folks is that you preach having blind faith in things, not living up to your intellectual responsibilities. And that's a, not only is that a bad thing, by which he doesn't mean objectively bad, but that's an irresponsible thing, by which he doesn't mean irresponsible. He means, well, none of us have any responsibility for what we do, or push this one notch further, believe, because we just do and believe what we've been caused to do and believe by the big mechanistic system of nature. 
I'm not responsible for being reasonable or not. <laughs> yeah. Nå handler det om fri vilje, og i følge naturalisme så finnes det bare energi og materie, og alt følger fysiske lover, alt følger fysiske lover. Det betyr like lite som en stein kan velge hva som vil skje med den hvis du slipper den eller kaster den, like lite kan vi mennesker velge noe som helst, men andre ord, fri vilje eksisterer ikke, sier Dawkins. Det finnes ingen fri vilje, alt er bare energi og materie som følger fysiske lov. Og når han i tillegg har sagt at det finnes ikke godt og ondt, så er det ekstra selvmotsigende når han først sier at religion er ondt, at religiøse mennesker er onde, og i tillegg vil holde de ansvarlige for at de er religiøse, når det faktisk er noe de ikke kan velge, fordi at alt følger fysiske lover. Så hvis du er religiøs, så har du jo ikke valgt det selv, du har bare blitt det, fordi alle omstendighetene rundt deg gjorde at du ble det. Med andre ord, fri vilje finnes ikke, ifølge Dawkins. Og da er det veldig rart at han og mange av kristere beskylder kristne for å ha valgt å bli kristne. Så, ja. Så... Indeed, if we asked, how could anyone, how could we, feel some sort of intellectual obligation to change our minds about our worldview, about our spirituality, and come to agree with Dawkins, to come to agree with a worldview, when that worldview that he wants us to come to agree with denies any reality to intellectual obligations? Again, the obvious answer is that we can't. It doesn't make any sense to feel an obligation to change our minds, to come to agree with a viewpoint that entails that we don't have any obligations, intellectual or moral. Finally, on, on Jesus, uh, just one brief point on, on miracles. As Lewis said, the, the, the canon, the rule, if miraculous, unhistorical, is, is one that critics bring to their study of the texts, not one they learn from it. Um, people's philosophy influences how they interpret the evidence in the New Testament about Jesus. Of course, if you think miracles can't happen because there isn't a God, or if you think even if miracles can happen, it's impossible for us to ever know that, um, then... Uh, you're going to end up with a very different picture of who Jesus was than if you approach that same set of evidence with the open-minded thought that maybe miracles are at least possible and maybe I should make my mind up about whether or not any have happened by looking at the evidence and seeing if it convinces me or not. You know, those are very different approaches to the, to the issue of the historical Jesus. Uh, and the new atheists will spout very... Um, commanding, sort of informed-sounding sound bites, um, like Richard Dawkins saying, the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is zero. Or uh, accounts of Jesus' resurrection are about as well-documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah, it's all just a fairy tale, all just made up. Um, doesn't know what he's talking about, but he sounds very confident in what he's talking uh, about. 
Um, and in particular, there's this, this issue of, of, of um, back to, to blind trust and evidence. And he tries to use this here. And he says, he criticises religious faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence. In other words, he's saying, the problem is the lack of evidence for miracles like the resurrection. Um, but he also asserts things like this. He says, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment. Um, really? Um, Anyway, um, in other words, what he seems to be saying here is something like, I won't believe any evidence for miracles. So he's, he seems to be saying the problem is there's not enough evidence, there's no evidence. But then he also says, I don't care about evidence. Because whatever the evidence is, it's not possible to believe in a miracle. Uh, for, and the reasons he would give for saying it's not possible, it's not reasonable to ever believe in a miracle... They are philosophical reasons. They're not scientific reasons. Uh, Dawkins asks, did Jesus come alive again three days after being crucified? There is an answer to every such question, whether or not we can discover it in practice, and it is a strictly scientific, factual answer. But he rejects such apparently open-minded investigation of the question on philosophical, prior to experience a priori grounds. He says, um, in his book, The Magic of Reality, he says, suppose something happens that we don't understand and we can't see how it could be fraud or trickery or lies. Uh, would it ever be right to conclude that it must be supernatural? Would it, could it ever be possible to rationally conclude that a miracle has happened? No, he says. Um, so saying, the problem with you religious people is you believe stuff without evidence and there's no evidence for the resurrection, is that if I were then to try and show him the evidence for the resurrection, he would say, don't confuse me with the evidence because evidence can never convince me that there's been a resurrection. Uh, this is what philosophers call a double standard. In common parlance, we have other terminology for, for this. Um, the journalist Fanny Kiefer um, actually puts to, to Dawkins in this interview a question about C.S. Lewis. Um, and when you read some of Lewis's work, why do you think someone who's a scholar like Lewis is grabbed by faith? And Dawkins attacks Lewis a little bit underhandedly and says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, after all, was a professor of English, no doubt a very good one, kind of there, there, English professor. Well, you know, okay, there, there, zoology professor. They're both talking outside of their subjects in that sense, Apart from the fact that Lewis studied greats at Oxford University, got a first class in it, uh, taught philosophy at Oxford University for a year, and even when he became an English tutor, did so on the basis that he would occasionally take philosophy tuition on the side as well. Anyway, so if anyone's got some qualifications in philosophy here, it's Lewis, not Dawkins. Passing on, uh, when you read some of his arguments, they are just pathetic. Uh, he doesn't mean um, pathetic, he means pathetic. Um, things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad, um, if he believed it and was wrong, or bad, if he didn't believe it, but he still claimed it, or he really was the son of God, if he believed it and it was true. Uh, it did not seem to occur to Lewis that Je Jesus could have simply been mistaken 
Ah, I could have been mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. Uh, I mean, what a pathetic argument. Let's see the the quote from Lewis. Lewis, in context, is really talking about this idea that many people have, many atheists today, including, as we'll see, Richard Dawkins, have, that Jesus was, he wasn't just a man, he was a good moral teacher, a wise moral teacher, but he was just a man. And Lewis says, but a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. He'd be a lying, blaspheming son of a so-and-so. Uh, you must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else uh, a madman, or something worth, uh, a con man of some kind. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. So in context, Lewis isn't even really arguing for the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. He says you can shut him up for a fool or fall at his feet, but don't come with this patronising idea that he's just a great moral teacher. But he's part of a tradition of, of arguing that's become known as the, the, Lewis, uh, the lunatic liar lord trilemma of, of arguing that given that Jesus did and said and so on directly and indirectly things that, that put him in the shoes of God as it were that laid claim to deity as understood in his culture those claims to be divine were either true or they were false now of course if they're true he was and is the Lord if they're false well again two options maybe he believed the claims that he was making or maybe he didn't and if he didn't he was lying that was his self-consciousness a liar and if he uh, did uh, believe it, but he was wrong, and he was a lunatic, because that is a pretty big gap between your reality and your self-understanding. And that's a good measure of your sanity. Um, and Dawkins' response to that argument is to say, what a useless, pathetic argument. A fourth possibility, this is a false trilemma, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. You know, sometimes I think I've left the keys by the door and actually I've left them in the fridge by mistake. Sometimes first century Palestinian monotheistic Jews go around saying, um, I'm God and I own angels and I'm in charge of the Sabbath and I'm more important than the temple and I can forgive your sins and I will judge the Jewish Sanhedrin by sitting on God's throne. Um, But he's just honestly mistaken. It's not that he's mad or anything. (laughs) or that he's lying he's just honestly mistaken now it seems to me that that is about the least plausible explanation of the situation that is less plausible than saying that he was a lunatic or that he was a liar (laughs) to think that he was just honestly mistaken I mean um, Stephen T. Davis hits the nail on the head I think when he says Uh, It's not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. This just doesn't make any sense. Um, You were at Holy Trinity earlier. Nicky Gumbel from Holy Trinity Church uh, wrote this uh, Exploring Christianity course called the the Alpha Course. And in one of his 
tracks, he says, um, the irony of the, the book, The God Delusion, is that Dawkins there says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. I think the irony of that uh, brings home how kind of facile and thin uh, Dawkins' honestly mistaken response is. As Mike King says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But the question is, why should Dawkins et al. not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Clearly, because even uh, a short flick through Jesus' life demonstrates that those possibilities are also untenable. Um, And you can see this from what Dawkins himself says about Jesus. So Dawkins himself says... There's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. He doesn't want to put him into the madman category. From Playboy. Yeah, from an interview in Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He also says, um, you know, that is not not plausible. Um, He also says he doesn't think that Jesus was a deceiving liar of a blaspheming con man. he, He says Jesus was a great moral teacher. Um, He talks about the moral superiority of Jesus, uh, anticipating Gandhi and Martin Luther King by 2,000 years. Um, He talks about his genuinely original and radical ethics and so on. So he likes Jesus' moral teaching and wants to say he was a great moral teacher but only a man, which is the very target that Lewis was, was taking aim at. And that's why he doesn't want to put him into the liar category either. But of course, if, if it's implausible to think that he was just honestly mistaken and yet not insane, if it's implausible to think that he was insane, and if it's implausible to think that he's a liar, you've got very few explanatory options left, really. Um, to the extent that you think these are implausible, so to that extent you will be led towards thinking that the Jesus was in his Lord category is, is the more plausible. See? Now, as I haven't there, I haven't presented this as a knockdown argument proving that Christianity is true. I, I, I think this is one interesting signpost and bit of evidence, along with a number of other bits of evidence that I would give, including the evidence for the resurrection and, and so on. And you know, I once wrote a book um, called um, Understanding Jesus Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. I gave five different categories of argument that together, I think, make a very strong case for the Christian understanding of Jesus. And that I think were the five arguments that Jesus and the disciples used in their persuasive evangelism. Um, So uh, Dawkins kind of inconsistently grapples with with Jesus. Um, He wants to put him into the very category that Lewis argues you can't. uh, And he tries to get out of that trilemma by saying, oh, there's there's another more plausible option and I think that, that supposedly more plausible, or he was just mistaken option, is actually the least plausible of all of the options on the table. And every uh, group that I've ever presented this material to over the, over the years uh, has usually, at the point where I, I quote Dawkins saying, oh, he was just sincerely mistaken, there's usually a sort of ripple of laughter uh, in the room as people sort of intuitively go, well, that's stupid. You know, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So... Um, there's a fourth kind of inconsistency uh, that Lewis would point to 
um, uh, in Dawkins' thinking, and that's kind of representative, I think, of how the sort of new atheist movement uh, deal with these issues. Thank you. Thank you.